turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 16. Sunday morning we're studying the book of Acts together and we come to chapter 16 and we'll look specifically at verses uh, 6 through 10. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up in the aisles right now with Bibles and just wave to them. They'll put one in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. God wants everyone to own a Bible and everyone to know a Bible. We know the Bible. We do too. And so please receive that from us uh, this morning. Pick things up in verse 6, Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Now, when they, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, had gone through Pergia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. Now, that already tells us it's a weird passage. Would you ever think the Holy Spirit would tell someone not to preach the gospel somewhere? And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. And so passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And after we had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So let's pray for the Lord to bless His Word to us this morning. I want to also pray for all of those shoeboxes that are going out around the world in the coming weeks. And uh, be, uh, remember, it's not too late to get a shoebox in if you'd like the rest of the day today and then tomorrow as well. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word and um, how often my mind goes to um, how many voices we hear uh, all through the week, Lord. So many words, so many thoughts, so many precepts, so many intents of people's hearts, and so m- many voices in our own heads and in our own hearts. It's just a great uh, refuge and a great blessing to be able to turn to your word and to know that it is the truth and it is perfect wisdom and it will always do us good. And Lord, perhaps most of all, what it reveals to us about you and your nature, your holiness and your grace and your goodness, Lord, and your love. And so we don't want to just learn a passage from the Bible as wonderful as that is. We want to go deeper in our understanding and relationship with you as a result this morning. Would you anoint us by your Holy Spirit for that? And Lord, we pray for these shoeboxes that are now going to go all around the world. And we pray that you would allow all of the transports to go through all of these very complicated parts of the world, national borders, tribe borders, corruption, all kinds of things. You know you've got a name attached to every one of those boxes. Uh, someone who has been fearfully and wonderfully made by you, some child, and we pray that you get those boxes to them. We pray that as Solomon wrote in Proverbs, that that gift will open up a door of influence into their life and that you would take that gospel track that is found in it, the meaning of Christmas, and you would make a young heart, whatever it takes, Lord, whatever their circumstances and personality, and just explode it to life. We believe with the Apostle Paul that we are not ashamed of the gospel, but that it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We pray that you would give that message of your invitation to a relationship with you, dramatic, awesome, personal power in each child's heart. Bring them to you and then bring their families as well. We lift all of it up to you, Lord, and ask that you would glorify yourself in all of it and do good to needy mankind as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I think it's good at this point in our study of the book of Acts to be reminded of the focus of the book and to be reminded of the title of the book. And the book is 
um, accurately entitled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. In some Bibles, you'll see the title page for the book is The Acts of the Apostles. And I'm not going to argue about that. It is true, but in a secondary way. It's a record of the Acts of the Apostles, but they could have never accomplished not one half of a chapter or one chapter, let alone 28 chapters of what's recorded independent of the Holy Spirit. Now, at its core, at its root, this is a record of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. There would be no book of Acts without uh, the Holy Spirit. There would be no early church without the Holy Spirit. There is no Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And so as we study through the book of Acts, we're not studying this kind of long series of individual and independent events that have just kind of been weaved together. We're reading a history, and we're reading a history that has at least one common denominator through all of it, and that is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we study it not to learn uh, historically what the Holy Spirit did in the early church 2,000 years ago, though we're thankful for that history. But we study it knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we do so in order that we might learn how the Holy Spirit did what He did, what He did, why He did what He did, so that we can then transfer all of that into 2,000 years later in history and allow that work of the Holy Spirit to continue through our lives today. I think it's instructive throughout the book how um, it reveals to us how utterly dependent the early church was on the Holy Spirit. They had no money. They had no property. They had no buildings. They had no PA systems. They had no power. They weren't even that talented. And, you know, you look at, I mean, are you going to choose fishermen and a tax collector to entrust the greatest thing that's been entrusted to human beings, and that is the great commission to impact the whole world, unless you're going to give them something or someone that's going to make that uh, possible to occur? I mean, these were not super educated, not super talented uh, kinds of people, and yet God uses them to explode the gospel and explode salvation upon the entire ancient world and then ultimately upon the entire world, and the fruit of it goes right into this room this morning, the salvation of most of us in this room. It's all a testimony to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, not only in an individual church, but in our individual lives as well. There's a famous author and pastor by the name of A.W. Tozer. He's now uh, in heaven. If you've never uh, read anything from A.W. Tozer, you're probably not saved this morning. Uh, just kidding those of you who are visiting. Uh, but A.W. Tozer, uh, anything you want to read by him is tremendous. Be prepared for uh, tremendous directness, uh, but uh, he certainly didn't uh, lack the gift of clarity, but deep spiritual insight. And he wrote in this regard concerning the Spirit. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on, and no one would notice the difference. And if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. Well, maybe most of us in the room have heard that quote by A.W. Tozer, and, uh, but I think every Christian needs to hear it. And so I repeat it for us this morning. It does something good in my heart and in, I think in our hearts as Christians to realize this very subtle but power, powerful capacity and tendency within our hearts uh, to shift the Holy Spirit to the background in our own lives or in the background of Christianity or the background of a local church and replace it with talent, replace it with money or power or influence or programs or, uh, you know, human intellect or cleverness. And the great temptation that it is even today and maybe never more than uh, today 
The statement by Tozer is a very challenging one, but again, I think it's an important one in, in keeping us alert to the possibility of it related to a church, but also our individual lives as Christians as well. The importance of being dependent upon the Holy Spirit, the importance of being led by the Holy Spirit, if we have any hopes of experiencing the book of Acts for ourselves, which is the desire of the Holy Spirit for uh, each of us. In uh, this regard, in terms of, you know, mentioning famous authors and things that are worth uh, reading, I highly recommend, it, recommend that every single Christian uh, own and read R.A. Torrey's book called The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit. R.A. Torrey is the author, and the book is entitled The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit, maybe the finest work on the Holy Spirit that I've ever read. And I read it very early as a Christian. Person and the Work of uh, the, the Holy Spirit. You, especially if you're somewhat new to the subject of the Holy Spirit, even though you maybe have been a Christian for a long time, but who he is, how he works, what he does, why he uh, does what he does, and so forth, this book is very helpful in that regard. And if you're new as a Christian, it's something that you will read multiple times in the course of your uh, uh, Christian life. This morning I want to examine uh, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit in leading us in God's will for our lives. And I want to do so uh, from what I think is the very unique vantage point of these verses. You can talk on the will of God and knowing the will of God and so forth from a lot of places within the Bible. But there's something about kind of the um, uncertainty, the roughness of these five verses related to knowing and walking in the will of God that makes it uh, maybe unique in all of the Scripture in terms of examining that particular subject. But before we get into it, I think we need just a little bit of a background. We remember that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are in the middle of what we uh, now know as Paul's second missionary journey. And very important to remember that when they began that second missionary journey, the intent of the Apostle Paul was that they would visit all of the churches that had been established in the first missionary journey and then to strengthen those churches. There was no focus on evangelism. There was no focus on going to any other churches than the churches that had already been established. Very important to understand what their original vision and intent was. They had, were told in verses 1 through 5, as we studied last time, they'd gone through Pergia and the region uh, uh, of Galatia. Both of those are located in what we know is the eastern part of the nation of Turkey today. They went to churches there, strengthening the brethren there. And then in our passage this morning, we learned that Paul then attempted to move into Asia. Now, when we think of Asia, did he get on an airline and head over to the Orient? We tend to think of Asia as uh, speaking solely of, of the Orient and the world. But there was a province in the Roman Empire located in western Turkey that was known as Asia. That's the Asia that's being referred to when you read the Bible, not the Orient. And so Paul here endeavors to go into the region of Asia, that uh, western part of uh, Turkey to continue uh, his missionary uh, journey. You can look at these things in a Bible map. Most Bibles have maps at the very back, and they'll give you the uh, you know, pictures of Paul's first, second, and third missionary uh, journeys. It's very likely that at this point in the second missionary journey that the Apostle Paul is trying to make his way to the city of Ephesus, a very significant city in the ancient world. It is a city that ultimately he's going to make his way to on his next missionary journey, and he's going to end up spending uh, three very long and precious years of his, uh, you know, the span of his public ministry, he's going to be invested in that city. But at this particular point in time, the Holy Spirit forbids them to go into the region of Asia there, as it's recorded in verse 6. Now, it can seem weird. It certainly does to me, and I hope I'm not alone related to this. It can seem kind of weird that the Holy Spirit 
would, number one, forbid them on a missionary journey from going into Asia and then going into Asia for the purpose of preaching the gospel. I mean, why would the Holy Spirit hinder anyone from going anywhere in order to preach the gospel? And uh, would the Holy Spirit do it? Yes, He does it right here in our passage. And I think one of the reasons is, is there's a whole, this whole thing called timing in God's will. It's not just where He wants us to go, but it's when He wants us to go to these various places in the course uh, of our life. There's a timing involved in God's work. Uh, Jesus told us that with the Great Commission that we're to go into the whole world, but it's the Holy Spirit that tells us what part of that world that we're uh, to go into, and we see this in play in this second missionary journey. Notice in verse 7 that having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to cross over into Asia, Paul and his team then traveled to a region called Mysia, which is in the uh, northwestern part of Turkey. And they intended then to kind of go in a uh, northeasterly direction into another Roman province known as Bithynia. And uh, again, we're told that the Holy Spirit did not permit them to do so. So having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go south... Uh, to go north, and given the fact that they'd already been east, they decided what they would do is go west to the city of Troas, where they would come to the end of the landmass, be face-to-face with uh, the Aegean Sea, and then to wait there for the Lord's leading for the rest of the missionary journey. And we see that in verse 8. While in Troas, verse 9, Paul had a vision at night, and a vision is simply kind of like a dream, only you have it when you're awake, and it's one of the ways that God communicates uh, His will. And so he is probably awake, it's nighttime, he's wondering about the will of God for the second missionary journey and so forth, and God gives him a vision. And Paul sees a man of Macedonia. Macedonia refers to modern-day Greece. This man is standing This man is also pleading. Have you ever watched a grown man beg for something out of necessity? It's a powerful scene. You've got a Greek man, and what in the world is a Greek man standing and begging a Christian for anything? The Greek culture was the dominant culture of that age. They had learning. They had power. They had uh, all of their wisdom and, and, uh, and all of this history that they had and so forth, the wealth and all of it, what in the world could Greeks need would be the idea in the ancient world. And yet here he is, he's standing and he's pleading, and he's pleading for the one thing that no people, no matter how talented did or how historically great or what their achievements or what their wealth uh, might be, uh, will not have until they come uh, into contact with Christians, and that is the gospel. And so he cries out and pleads, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy, they recognize that this is God's will, this vision has come from the Lord, and they concluded that this was the reason that all of these other doors had been closed to them. The Lord wanted them to go to Macedonia at this time to preach the gospel to them, as is recorded there in verse 10. And sometimes God reveals His will by opening doors. We always like that. God gave me an open door. Only God could have opened that door. Woo, we had such an open door. Listen, I'm not putting it down. I like it a lot. Most often, I like to be led by open doors, but it's, it's very easy to recognize God in an open door, but it's not the only way that He reveals His will. Sometimes He reveals His will by closing doors. Now, that's a little more depressing, and it takes me a little longer to catch up to the fact that maybe God is behind uh, the closing of that door, but it's where God begins to resist or He begins to hinder us when we're trying to go in a direction that He doesn't want us to go in life. I know that's never happened to you before, never happened to me, but there's churches in this town that are filled with people like that. Now, we all recognize it, related to our own lives. 
and he will resist us when we're trying to go in a direction he doesn't want us to go. Now, it can be very, very hard at those times to know whether it's God who's stopping us. When we hit that resistance, the door closes and so forth that we thought was where God wanted us to go. We hit that kind of a place, and there can be some real confusion that occurs there because it's hard to know at those times whether it is that God is stopping us here or is it spiritual warfare. And if, it's spiritual, if God is stopping us, I want to stop right now. But if it's spiritual warfare, most of us know that if you didn't fight through spiritual warfare, nothing would get done related to the kingdom of God. But so often finds we find ourselves in that place where for the moment we don't know whether it's God that's stopping us or it's the devil who's trying to stop us. There's lots of situations like that in the Christian life. Do we power through or do we stop and reassess here? And I think it's something that all of us have experienced at, you know, one time uh, or another. And it's a confusing season. Now, notice in verse 10 the appearance of this personal pronoun, uh, we. And it is Luke's way. Luke is the author of the book of Gospel according to Luke and also the book of Acts. He's the only Gentile uh, writer of a book in the New Testament. But he very quietly doesn't blow a trumpet and name his name or all. He just uses a new personal pronoun. So far, he's been talking to them about they, 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 they. And suddenly, we hit a we. And we realize that Luke, who is a doctor, Dr. Luke, now joins them in their missionary journey in the city of uh, Troas. And he will uh, go on with them into Philippi. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks and what God does in the city of Philippi. And then when chapter 17 starts, Luke, in, in recording uh, the account, he then begins to speak of them as they again. In other words, it appears that he stays in Philippi in order to help nurture that brand new church that is going to come out of the circumstances of chapter 16. He stays there, but then later on, I think it's in chapter 20, the we appears again, and he becomes a part of Paul's life and ministry once again. And until the end of Paul's life, one of the final letters that he wrote, he wrote, uh, only Luke is with me. And Luke became a very close friend and companion of Paul in his uh, work of the gospel in the ministry, and it isn't unlikely that he became Paul's personal physician. He was a physician. And Paul, listen, you read about what he went through, three times beaten with rods, so many times, you know, lashed, 29 stripes, 30 minus, or 39 stripes, 40 minus one, all the things that he went through. He seemed to have some physical problems as well. What missionary doesn't end up having physical problems? And Luke here, it looks like, becomes his his personal uh, physician. Now, in these verses here, Back into Acts chapter 16, uh, we notice the invaluable place that the Holy Spirit played in the leading of His people in the early church. And just think about how indescribably priceless this thing is that we call the will of God. Uh, we talk about the will of God and the will of God and the will of God and preachers talk about the will of God and pastors talk about the will of God and, and Christians talk about the will of God and the will of God and the will of God and the will of God until sometimes it just becomes like Christianese. And sometimes it's just to pull back a little bit and it's necessary to regain a little bit of awe over the will of God the sense of privilege associated with the will of God, that God would have a will for the world. And more than that, that God would have a will for you personally. And not only would he have a will for your life and my life, but that he would be so committed to you experiencing the excellence of that will that he commits himself on every level to ultimately take you by the hand and then to move you and me into that will. It is to be wealthy beyond expression 
to know the will of God and to be able to live in the will of God and the importance of having a sense of awe related to that possibility, related to that reality, and, and that he's interested in bringing us into that place. I, I do not say that every Christian in the world has a deep desire to know the will of God or that every Christian recognizes the will of God for their life is the pr- priceless thing that it is. Many have no concern at all for the will of God. And I know, I, I know that from experience. Christians that I come into contact with. But I do know that every Christian who is Spirit-filled will have a love for the will of God and will have a concern for the will of God for our lives because it's impossible to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit without also having a desire to be led by the Holy Spirit. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, the will of God. And the psalmist spoke of it with awe. He spoke of it with a sense of of privilege related to that. The prophet Jeremiah, he wrote of the alternative of being led of the Lord. The only alternative is to be led by man or to be led by myself. So he wrote of the alternative of men directing their own steps. He said in Jeremiah 10, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his ways. And Jeremiah probably learned this from personal experience in his own life, trying to direct his life and and not going very well, but also learning it by observation, observing it in other people's lives. I mean, how many of us in in our own lives, in, in our own history, past history related to our individual lives, but then the lives that we're in contact with all of the time, this world that we live in every single day, it simply broadcasts like a neon light to us every single day that it is not for man to direct his paths. And you watch how many people are determined to direct their own paths at every cost and not to turn to God and walk in His will or His path, and their life is one series of catastrophes after another. I mean, they're bloodied and bruised, not just outwardly, but emotionally and mentally in every kind of way. The world testifies through every single human being that doesn't know the Lord that it is not in man to direct his own steps. And maybe that's you this morning. You're tired of directing your own life and being a casualty of your own experiment, casualty of your own wisdom, so-called. Can you imagine not being a Christian? And for the person that I'm talking to, you know what I'm talking about. I wasn't always a Christian. Think about the pressure of waking up every single morning, and there is not an established truth in your life. And you have to redefine that or define that every single day. Rather than coming to know the Lord and then the witness of the Holy Spirit to the Word of God, and now you have God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad, and then the Holy Spirit comes into your life and into my life now to lead me into the perfect path that is for our lives. There's a lot of people that become Christians, not because of their sin. A lot of people do become Christians because of their sin and for the forgiveness of sins. Hey, listen, I'm not saying that isn't supreme. It is supreme. But there's a whole world of people who come to know Christ not because they're sick of their sin, but because they're sick of themselves. They, don't, they need to be delivered and freed, not necessarily from some individual sin, but from their own wisdom, for their own direction, the fact that they're making a casualty of themselves in their own hands, this kind of uh, grotesque, long-term kind of suicide that's that's going on to personality, to virtue, and all of it, and and so forth. And these people ultimately come 
and looking for deliverance uh, from God concerning themselves. That's why they come to know the Lord. I want my life to be under new management. I want it to be under God's management. I want to become no longer my own problem, but I want to become God's problem and God's project. Who would take you on as a problem? I got so many problems of my own. My margins are razor thin. I can't take on one other person's problems in my life, let alone God makes an offer to take on the problems of everyone in the world, including yours, and to make you a project of His and then turn you into a work of art. As Paul wrote, to the church at Ephesus, and he'll do that this morning, and he'll love to do that in your life this morning. You don't have to be a victim of your own wisdom. There is a God who has a path and a plan for you and wants to begin it in your life today. The will of God in our lives is a priceless possibility, and it should be a great desire of every Christian. The Apostle Paul described the will of God as being acceptable and perfect and good. He did so in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He said, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And so it is. The will of God is good. It's acceptable, and it's perfect. It is good for me and you. It is acceptable to God, and it is perfect in every way. The will of God for our lives is absolutely priceless. That is its value, and the early church esteemed it as such. Well, all of this then raises the question of how to discover God's will for my life. What are the means that he uses to lead us as Christians? But before we get into that, let me start by noting that there are times when understanding the will of God isn't that easy. And it wasn't that easy even for the Apostle Paul. He had a plan for his second missionary journey. Again, not supremely to go to new cities, to evangelize them with the gospel, but to visit existing cities that had churches established from his first missionary journey for the purpose of encouraging them and strengthening them. That was the understanding of God's will concerning the first missionary journey that the Apostle Paul was operating under. And then in verse 10, that focus was changed by none other than God And they are now to preach the gospel to Greeks in their own country. Think about that. And what a relief it is to see, at least to me it is, to see that Paul tried a couple of different directions and God blocked him because he didn't have the full mind of God concerning the purpose and the direction of this missionary journey. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd to read the passage, to look at a map, and see Paul and Silas and Timothy wandering north and south and east and west in ancient Turkey and all around the countryside trying to figure out what God is doing. You ever uh, thought you understood God's will for a certain situation only to have everything go in a completely different direction than you thought. I certainly have. I think most of us have. And maybe that's you this morning. And when that happens, we're just convinced, we're just convinced, we're convinced this is what God is doing, this is what He's going to do, this is where all of this is going to end as sure as Paul was of that second missionary journey, and then it doesn't turn out to be anything like that, or it ends up being something very, very different. I'll tell you what happens at a time like that. It can really shake our confidence 
in our ability to know the will of God and to be directed by Him. And that can shake us in an area we don't like to be shaken in our lives. But it's real. It's in the passage. I remember uh, a man who started attending Calvary Modesto when we were downtown. And uh, early on in his coming to the church, he caught me and he complained to me about the pastor of the church that he had uh, just left. And he complained that this pastor had made a particular decision and it turned out to be a wrong decision. And he declared that he could not submit his spiritual welfare to a pastor who couldn't hear God better than that. May I introduce you to the Apostle Paul <laughs> in Acts chapter 16. And the idea of this man was that if we were really spiritual and close to God, we would always know what God's will is at every moment. But it simply isn't always true. And it wasn't always true of Paul, and it wasn't, isn't going to always be true for us. Sometimes God reveals his will progressively, or we have a part of it correct, but we don't have every part of it correct. And I think it's helpful to realize that some of the greatest names in church history, some of the greatest missionaries in the history of Christianity experienced exactly what Paul experiences here and that I think every pastor and every servant of the Lord, every Christian in every pew or wherever we sit in a church building will experience as well. David Livingstone tried to go to China before he ended up being sent by God to Africa. All we know when we think about David Livingstone is Africa and the unbelievable impact that he made for God on that entire continent. We never think about him in terms of China. But when he began, he thought he was going to China. William Carey, who's called the father of modern missions, he planned to go to Polynesia in the South Seas, and God took him to India instead. When we think of William Carey, I mean, all we think about is India and what he did in India, that great subcontinent, what he did there for the gospel. When we think of William Carey, we never think of Polynesia. We never think of the South Seas, and yet that's where he thought he was going initially, and yet God ends up taking him to India. Adoniram Judson, he went to India first and was ultimately driven to Burma, where he would then spend 40 long, fruitful years. And how many of us know in this room, in some journey of some kind within our life, we thought it was going to go this way. We thought God had this in mind. We thought it would end this way, and it ends up something entirely different as God uh, progressively reveals His will to us. It's just the way that it is. You're not unspiritual when that happens in your life. You are not crazy when that happens in your life. You are normal. I wish I always knew what God's will was every time, but I don't. I don't think I ever in my whole life as a Christian ever have said, you know, thus saith the Lord, this is exactly what God wants and this is what we're going to do. Even as a new Christian, I was a little more conservative than that by nature. And I've certainly become a lot more conservative in this realm the older I've gotten. And so when I think I've heard God on a particular subject and I need to speak to it about someone, I always say, you know, the best that I can hear, God, I think this is the direction that we need to go in. Or I believe, and that's as qualifying a statement and qualifier as you can add to any statement is when I say, I believe. Hold your breath for what comes next. But I say, I believe this is what God wants us to do in this situation. I pray and I try to hear God, but much of what I do begins with the idea that 
this is going to begin in a certain way and end in a certain way, and then in the course of things, God redirects the course. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs 16.9, he said, A man's heart plans his way. Nothing wrong with that. But the Lord directs his steps. And that means that we need to be flexible in our plans. Nothing wrong with planning. But things can change. And God feels very free in our lives to change things when he knows it's best. But when he does that, it can really make us wonder, you know, why doesn't God just give us some bulletproof, foolproof formula for how to know his will every single time? That if he just says, you know, do X, add it to Y, add it to Z, and divide it by B, then you'll always know my will. Wouldn't that be so nice if God revealed his will in, in that kind of uh, of a way, with some kind of a formula. And I think the reason he doesn't do it that way is that we would be tempted to replace him with my formula. I'd have no, lo- no need to seek him for will in any situation or the will, his will in my life uh, at all. No need for praying to him about it. No need for walking uh, by faith. I would ha- develop a relationship no longer with him, but a relationship with the formula, and it would end up being a disaster relationally for most of us with God. It is only that we don't know his will so often that keeps us as close to him as most of us stay uh, to him. And so God does things in a way uh, that leads us in his will, but does so in keeping us wonderfully dependent upon him and our relationship with him and is very wise in how he does that. It's as inefficient as all get out. But efficiency isn't the most important thing. The relationship that we develop with God in learning His will and walking in His will is what is most valuable to God and ultimately to us as well. Now, what pastor, I'll take an illustration from, you know, where, you know, my life is centered. What pastor or Bible teacher doesn't on a regular basis you know, begin the week preparing a sermon, then investing two or three full days into that sermon, convinced this is what God wants to speak to that congregation on a Sunday morning, and they're even excited about the lesson, excited about the truth, can't wait to deliver that message, and then somewhere in the course of of the next hour or two to have the Holy Spirit then lift all of his favor off of that Bible study. It's as dead as the bones in Ezekiel. It's as dead as a tombstone. It is no more preachable or no more fire within the person's life at all to declare it at all. And then the Holy Spirit then directs that teacher to something else entirely different. And there's a mystery about all of it and the Christian life as a whole in this regard. And again, it seems very inefficient to me at the time. And I can't tell you how many one and two and three days I've invested in some passage of Scripture, to have the Holy Spirit then abandon it for something else now when time is very, very tight, and boy, it draws me really close to Him. Trust me. And, but this is the way uh, that it is. it is. It isn't always so efficient, but it keeps me, it keeps us close to Him, and it's important to remain, to be flexible in this regard Uh, because we know what we know, but God can make changes to our plans. And the purpose and the focus here of the missionary journey, it changes in verse 10 again now. It moves to preach the gospel to Greeks in their own country. So you're not crazy and you're not spiritually immature when this happens in your life, in my life. But there are helpful insights, I think, in the book of Acts for discovering the will of God and discovering the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives that each of us should be aware of in desiring to seek His will for our lives. The single greatest way to learn the will of God in any situation in our life is from the Bible. It's flawless. It's flawless. 
will never be led astray at all by uh, taking in the course of our life and we're facing some situation in life, some decision in life, taking all of those situations, all of those decisions and bringing them to the Bible and asking, what does the Bible teach that I should do here? And then discovering that and then doing that. So, for instance, somebody is wanting to marry as a Christian. They're wanting to marry a non-Christian. They go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. And Paul writes and says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship is righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And so there's the revelation. There's the will revealed. The psalmist writes in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks in the counsel, not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his, in his law he meditates day and night. And so that passage teaches us and tells us that we know not to make our decisions on the basis of counsel from someone who scorns God, who doesn't care about God, who doesn't take God and His Word into their thinking. So the Bible speaks a lot to His will in the daily of life, but there's an awful lot of things in life that the Word of God does not speak to specifically, decisions that we face. For instance, what city should I live in? There's no book of city in the New Testament that we turn to and get instruction on what city Christians should live in and direction on that. So what city should I live in? Should I rent that apartment or not? Should I buy that home or not? Should I sell my home or not? What career should I pursue in life? Should I go to college or not go to college? If I do go to college, what major should I uh, major in at college. If I don't go to college, then what kind of other training do I need to receive for what it is that I'm going to do as a livelihood uh, within the culture and for myself and for my own family? Should I go to the mission field or not? And so these are the kind of questions that come up, and we say the Bible doesn't address those specifically. And so how do we get an answer to that? Well, there are other ways that God led his people in the book of Acts. Often he revealed his will through the use of visions. At least five times in the book of Acts, the Lord used visions to guide his, serv uh, his servants. Make sure you've eaten like just pasta with maybe like uh, an olive oil, uh, you know, or just a, um, a tomato sauce. Don't don't eat one of those um, Wendy's hamburgers that is like 16 patties and 87 pieces of bacon and 40 slices of cheese and eat that and then, and then go. You can have visions just from that that have nothing to do with God. But, it, but using visions, God uses that and uses it repeatedly in the book of Acts. At other times, he revealed his will through prophets at other times, he guided them through circumstances where um, the, the, there was either persecution that drove them in one direction or another. Sometimes illness, it appears, in, in, uh, in, in directing people. And you know how God just works supernaturally, naturally. It just looks like, well, you know, I got sick here or uh, this happened here. A persecution occurred and the next thing I know, I was bounced over into this next city. And then we ended up planting the church there and that's where the thing thrived. And God is just directing directing supernaturally, naturally. Sometimes he, he directs through the use of spiritual gifts like a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. He did that with a council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And sometimes he just spoke to people individually. He just get, would give them the strong impression of his will and uh, that, no, they were not to go in this direction uh, or, and, and putting a hindrance here, removing his peace for kind of a planned direction. And, and that's exactly what's happening in the passage here. We don't know how God forbade uh, Paul and his team from going uh, into uh, Bithynia or into Asia. We just know that the Holy Spirit uh, did it. But I wouldn't be surprised if he used this thing called peace from the Holy Spirit to uh, direct him. 
the Bible teaches Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, important verse on the will of God, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. And the word rule means to umpire or to make the call. Let the peace of God make the call in the decision-making in your life. It's kind of like when you come to a decision or a fork in the road as a Christian, and as you look at that decision and everything is going in a particular direction, and all of a sudden you lose your peace between you and God. And you just have this sense uh, of the, from the Holy Spirit inside of you that you are not to move forward in, that, in a certain direction. You are not to make a certain uh, decision. There's just something. You look at it inside. There's just this sense you're uneasy. There's something wrong here. It isn't right. And it's one of the ways that God communicates His will to us. Sometimes you can hear uh, Christians uh, use the phrase, you know, I have a check in my spirit. And, and what, what they're saying there is there's something wrong here. It all looks right. It all looks right. It all looks perfect. The pressure's on me to do something here, but I've got to check in my spirit. Something isn't right here between me and the Holy Spirit. Something's wrong. And then when I have that check in my spirit to stop the direction I'm going in or not to make the decision that I was going to make and instead go, no, something's wrong here. I'm missing God here. I'm going to go back to prayer again and get his mind on this issue. Never go against the peace of God in your life. It will always lead to regret. It's one of the ways that he, he directs us. And then sometimes God just leads us by hindrances, which is what he does here that no matter how hard we huff and puff and try to blow the house down and accomplish this certain thing that we're doing that we can even be convinced that God has called us uh, to do, we work hard at it, we try to make something happen, and we try and we try and we try, and there's no success and there's no blessing and there's no peace. And as someone has said, the stops as well as the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And I think all of us know something about that sooner or later. But how do you know? Again, it goes back to the confusion of the whole issue. How do you know if it's God hindering you or it's just the devil hindering you and you just need to push through by faith? You don't know. Only God knows. And so we then have to go to the Lord and seek Him in prayer. Which brings me to my final point concerning God's leading in our life. And it's very short to give some of you hope. And it concerns the confidence that we're to have in the midst of what is sometimes a confusing part of the Christian life. And the confidence is to always realize that God wants us in His will more than we even want to be there. And we want to be there bad. You think nobody could, nobody could want to be in God's will more than I want to be in God's will for my life. God wants you to be in His will more than you want to be in His will. He brings an even greater motivation to all of us, and He will get us there if we are willing. He will always get the person who wants to be in God's will. He will always get us into that place if we're willing so that we can just relax and know it's all going to work out and it's going to work out okay. A couple of verses that are important in this regard. Famous verse, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him. And then here it is. And He shall direct your paths. We trust, we pray, we submit ourselves to God, and then He makes it His responsibility then to direct our lives in His will for them. He takes the lead on it. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The same promise. 
If we want God's wisdom and direction related to our lives, God is going to give it to us. The one frustration in James chapter 1, verse 5, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't tell us when He's going to do it. He doesn't tell us that it's going to happen at a certain particular time. He just says, it will come. It will come. You want wisdom, a knowledge of my will, it is coming to you. But he doesn't tell us when it's going to happen. And that can be a frustration to type A's like me. And I think that one of the reasons that God makes us wait where we know that He wants us to do a particular thing, or maybe we don't know He wants us to do a particular thing. We're waiting on Him, and I think so often God waits until the timing is perfect. It is now t- not only does He want us to do this thing, but now the time, it's His timing for this thing to be done, and He tells us when the timing is right. Because if you're like me, again, type A, I assume that when he lets me know what his will is, that he wants it done right now, and I'll run a thousand miles down the road only to find out later that that's for three months from now. So what he does with knuckleheads like me is he waits three months, and then he tells me. So there's not only the what related in, in the how of God's will, but there's also the when. There's the timing of it, and God will let us know always let us know, though sometimes we have to wait uh, for the timing, but even the timing will be right. Paul will ultimately bring the gospel to the city of Ephesus, and apparently he tried to here on this missionary journey. It'll happen later at another time. Don't let God-given vision die in your heart this morning because it hasn't happened at the time that you thought it would or the thing, God seems to be doing something entirely different at the moment. It may be for a future time. Again, understanding the will of God in our lives, His leading, it isn't easy. It even took an apostle some time to get it figured out. And it even took the apostle Paul some time to come to understand it. And I don't know about you, But that makes me feel real good to know that because we all find ourselves in that place at times and to know you're normal when it does happen. But then in that waiting period to be confident that he will lead you into his will and into his way. Again, I think the reason he doesn't give us this foolproof formula to know his will is we would immediately develop a relationship with the formula. We would jettison the relationship with God and then develop a relationship with a formula but not one with God. And if I have a relationship with a formula, it's not going to be very long before I don't care about God's will at all. The whole thing collapses under itself. And so there's this mystery associated with it. Yes, it's highly inefficient way of doing things in this regard, but it keeps us very dependent upon God and close uh, to Him. It's very helpful to know that God's, the will of God isn't always clear for us at any given moment concerning His will for our lives, but that when that happens, we aren't crazy, we aren't unspiritual, but then again to be reminded, to be confident that it will break open at some time. If we desire it, then he makes it his personal responsibility to make sure that it will happen. So relax and just inhale, hold it, exhale. Now don't you feel better? I had intended, and I know I'm a couple minutes long, I had intended to move in this Bible study to move on into Philippi and into Lydia getting saved at Philippi and then even as far as dealing with the demonic girl being delivered of her uh, spirit of divination even further into the passage and then taking a point from each of these three particular uh, kind of vignettes here and, and tie it up with a Thanksgiving greeting. But as I was putting finishing touches on the sermon yesterday afternoon, I just had this very, very strong impression that the Holy Spirit wanted to speak to someone or some group of us this morning in this room on the very issue of God's will and to sow this 
encouragement um, into your hearts. Not every sermon is for everyone, but every sermon is for someone. And we're glad for the hearts that it hit today. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, you know us so well. You know our desire to be in your will. We don't want to be anywhere else, not for a minute. And yet, coming to understand that, Lord, it isn't a science and it isn't a formula. And we aren't unspiritual, as you know, when we find ourselves in the very place of Paul in this passage. But we thank you that just as you redefined his missionary journey and brought it in a place that he didn't think it would, you brought it into your will. And I pray, Lord, for the men and women that stand before you right now, and we pray for one another, that in the confusion, and sometimes it can be a disorienting confusion, Lord, we thought, we thought, we thought, now what's this? That you would just breathe your spirit upon them strengthen them, encourage them, Lord. And we pray that you would speak very strongly to their heart, that you know how to get them from where they are right now to where you want them to be and then to what you have planned next for their life and that you have made that your responsibility in their life so they can then rest in that. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.